Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I think that by the, you know, what is the definition of the term Antichrist? It's not, we often picture that as simply the, that which opposes Christ. But I think what that misses, no, the Antichrist, especially as John is dealing with it, are people who are in the church. There are people who are claiming Christ. You know, he says that anyone who does not say that Christ has come in the flesh is of the Antichrist. These are Christian teachers uh, proclaiming the gospel, uh, claiming Christ. And so the Antichrist is Christianity, the name Christianity. Uh, but it's Christianity gone bad. It's the Christ that is posed as an alternative to what the New Testament teaches. What would you say if if I if I try to tack onto that that not just that we say that Christ was not here physically, but that Christ did not call us to a physical kingdom where we live out these principles, but to a spiritual reality that has no bearing on how we live day to day as people. Um, So that you can be a good Methodist who's going to heaven someday because you have practiced these sort of spiritual realities. Um, But it doesn't really matter how many people you've killed. Um, or those kinds of things are, 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 have no bearing. I can't tell you the number of times I've had a conversation where I've said, well, but Jesus has called us as Christians to be different. And someone has said to me, yes, but that doesn't work for nations. To which I usually reply, which is why Jesus has called us to think differently about our participation in nations. Mm-hmm. Um, you're right. You don't operate a good nation by turning the other cheek, loving one's enemy. You don't operate a nation that way. But we were called to be an alternative kind of uh, anti-culture who's uh, uh, sort of like an antibiotic uh, working within that culture, but sort of outside of it, but within it. um, It's kind of a bit of an oxymoron, I suppose. But... um, that that whole the way we we talk the way the scripture talks about antichrist the denying of christ the denying of his his being um i I wonder if there's more to that uh than what comes across in the language initially when we read it well i think i think i'm not sure where you're taking that but i think in other words once you get that that what we're talking about is an is a third you know a fifth columnist that someone that is here among us and using all the language in other words i think you can take the christian language of redemption and pervert it freedom what is freedom well that is the thing that uh it cannot be differentiated between the freedom that the nation state offers and the freedom that christ offers you know, there's a little Baptist church near here that has the the cross and uh, on the background, and the background is much more pronounced than the flag. And it's you know, Freedom Baptist Church. Well, what freedom? 
<laughs> I think you could go right on through uh, the idea of, uh, you know, redemption. And as you're describing it, uh, that are the very notion of a kind of Gnostic understanding. I think this can work in one of two ways. That is, you, you, what you describe, an overt Gnosticism in which you would talk about a kind of disincarnate reality that um, in some way that going to heaven, being redeemed is a spiritual reality and it does not pertain then to an earthly physical reality. The other way that that's that it can function in the same way is Luther's picture, or actually even going back to Augustine, the picture of two kingdoms, that there's the city of God and the city of man. And in some way, those things are alternatives, and we participate in both, but should not confuse the two. And the point being that there there is a way of even, you know, picturing uh, the state as if it is in some way God's means of reign and rule and the kingdom of God is does not pertain to that reign and rule. But of course, what you're saying is, well, no, the kingdom of God is directly a challenge to the reign and rule as we would have it in the kingdoms of this world. And so that either way, there is a kind of... Uh, the, the entire vocabulary of the New Testament becomes something quite different if the context for it is either a kind of Gnostic Christianity or a Christianity that is thought in some way not to pertain to the principalities and powers and, and their free, you know, their free expression of their necessities. Well, yeah, I think that's exactly what I'm getting at, and that that you know, N.T. Wright talks about um, the uh, the the folks that were reading the Gnostic Gospels, and he always says that the ones that were reading the Gnostic Gospels weren't giving Rome any trouble at all, because they were talking about this sort of spiritual reality that didn't really have any bearing on the way we do uh, the state, and um, and I think that a lot of folks that I know. Um, who who call themselves Christian, um, they they differentiate between what Christianity is saving them from, and what America has saved them from. And on some level, what ends up happening every time is that their Christianity must then become subservient to their Americanism. Because it's America that gives them the freedom to be Christian in the first place. Um, so that, um, that you actually sort of owe your faith to this country, uh, that makes it possible when in fact, you know, really it is, um, we're not supposed to see it that way at all, that we should be willing if the country were to turn to us and say, you are no longer able to be a Christian, which I'm, I'm not convinced isn't a possibility um, that you should be willing to say, well, I, I, whether or not I have the freedom doesn't impact the freedom, whether or not I have the ability to practice my faith outside of the legality, uh, of, uh, uh, of being right with the state, I'm going to practice my faith anyway. Um, the, 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 I, the, the, 
the heroism of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego um, is foreign to most most American Christians. The idea that that you do your faith whether or not the empire says it's okay um, and gives you that right to do that. And I think once you've made that shift to thinking that it's the state that makes my faith possible, then you can get behind and support. And almost, I think the thing about the vice move, we can get back to that for a moment. The thing about the vice movie was how unsurprising most of it was. Uh, it, it, even if you're not a hundred percent sure that it's completely historically accurate, there wasn't anything in it that wasn't shocking. Um, or that was shocking, I should say, because you're like, yeah, I totally believe that. And, and yet that was the, I grew up being taught that as Christians, this is who we support. This is the Christian option. Um, I, I don't think most folks that claim to follow Jesus can articulate the tension between being a, a kind of a Dick Cheney versus following uh, J- Jesus. The, if we're back to the movie, you have to... It, I don't know if I meant to bring us back there, but... Uh, yeah, that the Christian Bale is... Uh, the the connection here that I made be, between the Batman movies and, and this movie... Uh, and maybe the, the, that's the theological discussion. Is there such thing as radical evil? Uh, is there just evil that uh, is for evil for the sake of evil? Uh, and of course, that's the portrayal in the various Batman movies is that the bad guy, the Joker, uh, that Batman is fighting, that he, he's fighting pure evil that it is evil for the sake of evil. And that may be the discussion here. Is is this then a... I, that's the portrayal of the movie, Vice, you know, that here is a guy who who is just out for power. Uh, or is, is, in fact, that the one inaccuracy? That's the point of the New York article, that it's not a, a, a pursuit of power free of ideology and of course the original point is well which is more dangerous uh, a kind of non-ideological just pursuit of power for the sake of power or in fact a program in which what is being put into place is a kind of manufactured consent uh, the the point of selling an I- ideology uh, the uh, an attempt to set up a kind of, I don't know that Cheney was setting up a deep state, but at least he was subverting the powers, uh, the the power of government as it's supposed to operate in the in in the Constitution, uh, which is more dangerous, to state it in a kind of simplistic way, right? You know, the guy with the meat cleaver, or the guy that is is sinister. I'm not sure that I I believe in radical evil, uh, that that there is such a thing, um, but I believe that there are people who 
imagine a world that there that that sort of evil is a possible. In other words, I don't believe that there is such a thing as an, the ontological possibility of you know Satan, the be thou my god, and in some way tapping into some sort of evil power. I don't believe that. I, I do believe there are people that believe that and that can function and operate uh, accordingly. But I guess the question is, which is more dangerous, uh, a Cheney-like character or a Trump-like character, an ideologue who is manufacturing consent or a guy who is uh, more, uh, maybe uh, less insidious, but more power-hungry? Well, you know, we, we, we talked about this a little bit prior and uh, what what struck me about that question is that um, part of the point of the of the Vice movie was that uh, you hear you have Cheney who's championing and Cheney and in a small circle of people that are uh, pushing this agenda who are sort of championing this um this idea about the executive branch that gives it sort of almost a unilateral power and uh, for what they consider to be reasonably justifiable motives. Um, on, if you're asking which is the more dangerous, the person who has a motive that he believes or she believes is uh, morally justifiable or the person that doesn't seem to recognize any kind of moral authority. I'm not sure that you can, I'm not sure that's a question that's easily answerable. Um, uh, oh, I was hoping you would answer. <laughs> I've worked for both uh, and <laughs> it hurt both times. The uh, <laughs> On the one hand, you know, you've got folks that, that don't seem to have any moral compass. Um, I can't remember. I think it was uh, one of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, and it was Johnny Depp's character who who claims, you know, the ones you got to be careful for are the honest people. A dishonest person you can always count on to be dishonest. But it's the honest people. You never know who, when they're going to do something stupid. And, um, you know, <laughs> besides the fact that it was a Pirates of the Caribbean movie, I actually thought that was – that was reasonably <laughs> truthful that there was, that's that, true. There yeah, was something to that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer makes a similar statement. The, the, it's not the people who are just out and out evil that are most dangerous. It's the stupid people that are most dangerous. And I think what he was thinking of that he's, he's faced with a church that in some way has proven stupid. Right. Uh, that in, in some way they can't, they're blind. They can't see what's happening. Uh, that they're willing to promote uh, Hitler and the national socialism, imagining that it accords with their understanding of their faith. Right. And, and his whole point is that this sort of stupidity is in the end a more insidious and harder thing to, to break through than, I mean, evil eventually just shows its hand. We all know, you know, what that looks like and, and uh, in some way can get rid of it. 
but stupidity in some way uh, may be the more dangerous of the, of the two. I don't, at least in Bonhoeffer's estimate. I think you can make you can make a dis, uh, you can make a, a comparison then uh, between the the Dick Cheney of the movie Vice, who is willing to justify all manner of tortures. Um, on the one hand, um, evil and cruel and horrible, horrifying. And for those of us that are willing to, to do the kind of reflection necessary to adequately think about that, would look at it and say, it's wrong. Um, and then, but you compare that to the kind of evil that I that I see being done in the name of national security or whatever we're calling it now. Um, the number of children who who it is who we're now finding out have been separated from their parents at the southern border. Um, it, it one wonders, and I'm hesitant to call it a greater evil. Not sure what else to call it. Um, that stupid, given power provided by uh, what's the term we were using? Just an insidious. Mm. It may, may be more. I don't know if it's worse or not. I, and I don't know if, as Christians, we're supposed maybe maybe we're supposed to look at both and say neither one is what Jesus had in mind. And both are are pretty awful. And I guess the the one that we're guilty of uh, as Christians, I don't think Christians uh, set out to be uh, supporters of terrorism, genocide, uh, just war crimes. Uh, But in some way, that's the reality that has unfolded that there is a kind of incapacity for thought, an incapacity uh, to recognize the reality that has been foisted right. upon us, upon them. Uh, that uh, I'll even, you know, I include myself in this, that you're, if you're raised in this thing, I, I was raised in, you know, North, at least part, I became a Christian in Texas in the whole uh, vein of, Christianity that I that I entered into was one that was just so mixed with nationalism that it was totally confusing to me. I couldn't. I had I had no real alternative. Maybe it maybe it required going to Japan for twenty years to to free me. <laughs> right. uh, it it's obvious to see it in in a in another place. You know the the way that it functions. So that uh, I, I'm afraid that what we're what we're seeing in in the contemporary period is a church that is made uh, brain dead uh, by the powers that be. That in some way uh, that the manufacturing of consent that takes place purposefully through not any particular not right wing or left wing, but just through the media. And that is the the sort of information that is allowed to be out there. It so shapes us, maybe you know the and and has become a inescapable. 
because our Christianity is in some way does not allow us in the form that we often have it to stand outside of that and take any kind of objective view. And I don't think it's any new um, problem. Um, Vanjie and I have sort of been uh, reflecting lately as we've talked about our experiences in different churches. Um, it's not a new problem. Um, I think uh, on, on some level, you know, we can, those of us who've been brought up or, or read a lot of, of um, peaceful Christian theology can trace it back to Constantine and trace it to, well, we can even see it in, um, in Anselm and his atonement theology. But I think you can read it all the way back um, in um, uh, Israel's history that um, there's always been this pressure for uh, God's people to look at the shininess of the political and cultural uh, powers around them and say, well, we need to have that. Um, and it, that's, that I think is one of the reasons why it can be so confusing and so, um, so dangerous um, that we don't, we don't, we don't see how our, our faith in Jesus gets co-opted mm. by power and the willingness to do, to do evil until sometimes it's too late. And so in some way we need to be able to name this idol. We need to be able to discern what it is, that it, it never changes. And, and essentially it is, it always is going to present itself in the same way. And that if we have the tools, the just the basic theological tools to say, well, here's the way that evil will pose itself and be able to recognize it, put our finger upon it, uh, that maybe that's step one in getting in overcoming it and rejecting it. And of course, the once you see that, I think it, it functions in every realm, that it's not just a, a political realm. It certainly is that, that. Uh, politics, you know, just the raw power. But I think it works in philosophy. I think it works in sociology. I think that it, it's there across the board that there is this mode of a, a kind of, you know, this is the, I, I, at a deep level that this is what is taking place psychologically, uh, that there is a kind of reification of what is, in, in, in essence, nothing. Uh, it doesn't amount to anything. And it's made to seem to be everything. Uh, that and that's the nature, I, I, I think, of not just of an overt idolatry, but that's always the, the deception that's foisted upon us. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a great idea. I don't. I think it's a. I think that could be a, a huge project to try to name that. Um, I think my first my first inclination is to just call it power. And um, ironically, that's in the vice movie that I think if besides the F word uh, would probably be the, the word that is used most often is power and the, and the desire to increase power and to gain power. But um, 
if you don't mind me sort of jumping into the class that Vanjie is teaching for us at, in uh, the Plowshares Bible Institute, um, she's using uh, uh, Vanier and Hauerwas's book um, on uh, gentleness and powerlessness. And of course, Jean Vanier's work with large community is uh, his realization is that to do community with one another, we embrace powerlessness. We empty ourselves of power. I think this um, fits exceptionally well with Philippians 2, um, that where Jesus uh, empties himself and becomes a servant, becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. And, you know, therefore, you know, if we're going to get along with each other, that's the kind of life we're supposed to be willing to live. Um, that maybe it's maybe it's more beneficial to articulate what the gospel is calling us to than the idolatry. But I think if the if I was trying to label the idolatry, it would almost universally be the desire for power maybe status, power and status. Um, I don't know that you were asking for a name right up front. I get, uh, I, I, I'm, I want to agree, but I wonder if what we have in Christ is not simply the dissolution of power or the undoing of power, certainly the way that the power of this world is exercised, but in fact, a utilization of power. In other words, think of what it took to face the, the powers that be, what it took to bear the cross, what it takes on our own part to face down the principalities and powers. That it it is, it is not a power on the order of this world, you know, a... Uh, simply power that overcomes power, but it is the power to stand with the dispossessed, those who are powerless, the power to, in some way, the power is the wrong word. I get it that, that it's the wrong word, but it's a, somebody who's imbued with a particular capacity that enables them to stand up, you know, in the way that Christ stood up uh, to, to things that are almost beyond human capacity to endure and yet we're enabled to endure that maybe that maybe the wrong word for that is is power uh but there is a kind of uh you know in yoder's phrase the uh, uh, what is it what is it the subordinate uh, uh undoing of those powers in other words you don't you don't fight the power with power but you undo them by a radical subordination. Uh, I think the Apostle Paul, the way he worded it was that Jesus has disarmed the powers that he's, and, and, you know, if we were, if we're still trying to make this relevant to this film, I think the thing about the film is it, that, that struck me the most is that it reveals, um, our culture's um, fascination with power. I shouldn't even say our culture. I, 
I don't think it's any different than the rest of history that, that we're a people that are desiring security enough that we're willing to do anything to secure ourselves. Um, but that Jesus on the cross disarms those powers in that they no longer have the kind of control so that who in, in the, the soul, the, the, the person that's been, that's being waterboarded in Guantanamo, according to the gospel, who has the most power in that engagement? Well, the world says that the person waterboarding this person has the most power. Um, the uh, the gospel, I think, says it's the opposite, that you're you're not taking anything from this person that, that can't be given back, A. And when you get nothing out of this person, then what has this person done except reveal what's wrong with you in the beginning, that you're willing to do this evil to someone, whether or not they... Uh, have it coming as uh, as our culture might might say um, this I think uh, when you read um, some of the better Anabaptist literature on the book of Revelation is I think the point of of these kind of passages in the New Testament that that talk about Jesus being victorious over the powers in Revelations 5 it Revelation 5 it says, um, you know, the, the, I, I turned and looked and what I thought was the conquering lion. Look, see, the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah is the one who is able to read the scroll. And I turned and looked at what I thought I was going to see a lion and what I saw was a slain lamb. And it is our willingness to be slain that undoes the power of, of the uh, emperor empire that that tries to control you through fear because of their willingness to use the sword um as as people who believe in jesus who who say i'll take up my cross rather than take up a sword uh and you know jesus in disarming peter disarms all all soldiers um when he turns to peter and says um put down your sword. If I wanted to start a war, I could call 12 legions angels. I don't need 12 guys. Mm-hmm. Um, th- that's exactly, he, he's saying, I, I'm going to undo this power. That That's part of the, I, I, to me, I think that's one of the, the, the reasons I think of Christianity is not being just this spiritual reality, but being a new politic in the first place, that it's, that it's undoing our ideas about what makes something powerful in the first place. Yeah, you're right. It's not that the word that, that it's not just that it, it, there's a new kind of power that happens, Mm -hmm. but it's a power that's revealed in weakness. And I think, uh, first Corinthians one, um, is, uh, is sort of the, the, I always sort of go back to that, that, um, that when Paul is describing in first Corinthians one, this, this is a, a sort of, I don't know, it's like a thesis, you know, um, uh, it's a, it's a thesis on a rejection of violence that it, the world thinks this is crazy. And yet this is the power of God to really make a difference in the world. I preach the cross of Christ and that the, the world says this doesn't make any sense at all. You don't, 
You don't turn things around by dying. No, that's exactly what gives us power is our willingness to die rather than to, to kill. Um, but yeah, that's maybe that, that, that hits it. That, that one power is the power of the fear of death. That in some way it's death that's always being circulated. That the, the one who has the power to take life or seemingly the power to, to deal out death, uh, the notion of security, the notion even uh, that, that it, what is always being circulated in the kingdoms of this world uh, is founded upon the, the power of death and that death in some way functions as the absolute, that there is nothing you know, greater than uh, the be, being able to met out who, who lives and who's, who dies. But if you remove then the fear of death or you remove death as the absolute, which I think is what Christianity has done, it renders that very notion of valuation uh, worthless. It undoes it. It undoes the very form of that power so that it, it is an alternative to that that no longer is dependent uh, upon the fear of death uh, for value. And if you don't mind me taking it a step further, and and forgive me, uh, and it, we've gone a little long, I think, but the but your ideas about the resurrection, I think, are central to that, and that the resurrection of Christ is is essential to our understanding of how Jesus undoes the powers and our own looking forward to what will come is what gives us the ability to live that reality out in the now. Um, even when the rest of the world is unwilling to recognize it, um, we will bow that knee to a crucified King, which this is the insidious nature of penal substitution is it, it shifts it shifts the political ideas about what was happening to Jesus during the crucifixion to a purely um, uh, theistic uh, sort of thing. Well, God, he, he was dying to satisfy God's need to punish you when in reality he was, he was dying because the powers couldn't, couldn't bear uh, what he was saying. It was a threat to them. Um, when we've moved Jesus' death to primarily being about um, this spiritual reality, then of course it it doesn't have any bearing on on the way we live day to day. If of course it it has a it has a if 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 it was about denying the powers of uh, this world. Uh, or this world's structures, then in reality, it's calling us to follow on that and to not participate with the Cheneys or the Trumps and to say there is a better reality, a better kingdom, a better nation that we've been called to operate within. And, and that's, 
and and we're not going to see that worked out in its fullness. And but we do, we are called to live it anyhow, because someday it will be seen in its fullness. Um, that's again going back to Philippians two. You know, every knee someday will bow, and every tongue someday will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, right now we do. And the Jesus Christ that we claim as Lord is the very same one that Paul said, we preach Christ and him crucified. Well, that's a, that is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the rest of us. Um, I, I think Paul, um, Paul saw it as a stumbling block to Jews because that wasn't what Jews were looking for in a Messiah. I think he would probably now say stumbling block to Christians because that's also not what Christians are looking for mm-hmm. in a Messiah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very different way of reading the New Testament. This is what I've done with the, you know, the picture of the trial of Jesus, that Jesus before Pilate. I think what we, we tend to do is to dismiss that episode as if it's some sort of secondary thing. But isn't it interesting that that's put front and center in the Gospels? Here is one sort of power facing down another sort of power that here is what the gospel is about, the conflict of these two powers in these two kingdoms, and who has the power to judge, uh, and, you know, what, uh, who is sitting in the seat of judgment is even under contention in the book of John. And so you don't need to read beyond that or under that or uh, that. No, it's just this, the, the real world political power coming into conflict with the kingdom of God. Uh, that is at stake then in the the death, the the passion of Christ. Right. I mean, if you uh, if you read the Gnostic Gospels, um, uh, the one that that came out after I was had just graduated from from college. Uh, I mean, it hadn't just come out. I don't mean it that way, but uh, somebody had published a translation of the gospel of Judas that had been uh, discovered back in the seventies. And um, I remember um, just sort of out of morbid curiosity, being interested in this, uh, obviously um, mid uh, third century Gnostic document. And there's not much of it left, but it's uh, one of the, the lines portrays Judas as the hero and Judas is the hero because Jesus turns to Judas and says, you will free me from the man that enslaves me. In other words, you're going to free me from this physical being so I can go on. Um, and, and um, you know, we're taught in Bible college that the Gnostic religion is a, is a heresy, and it is a, a heresy. And yet the, the religion that we're taught to follow anyhow um, doesn't see the tension between the way the Gospels portray the betrayal and the trial of Jesus. Uh, the Gospel writers um, called, they don't have any love for Judas. <laughs> um, they're, um, they're, they see Judas as a, as a betrayer. He betrayed Jesus. What he did was wrong. And they portray the trial as a travesty of justice. Um, when, if you're going to do straight penal substitutionary atonement, you have to see the trial 
and even Judas's uh, betrayal of Jesus as necessary evils to bring about um, what was necessary so that we can go to heaven someday. You need Judas to betray Christ so that you have the death of Christ so that you can get saved. Which, if you're reading the Gospels very carefully at all, um, that's not the way they portray it. Uh, Jesus says, I'm, don't, he doesn't say, I'm getting ready to be turned over to God so that, that, so that you can be forgiven. He says, I'm, I'm going to be turned over to evil people. I, I didn't do it, and I f- finished the section I was doing on Anselm. What I didn't do, uh, there was actually more to it than what I put out there. That Anselm, you know, has the, the he's got this nice exchange between uh, God and that Christ is paying the debt. And of course, the problem is that the greatest sin that could have ever occurred was that someone would kill the Lord of Glory. Well, then if someone has committed this greatest sin in killing Christ, which you need the death of Christ in order to pay the debt, then how could their debt be paid? And he said, well, the explanation is that they did it in ignorance. And so that there is a surplus amount above and beyond uh, what, what was paid because of their ignorance. So that the necessity of the death of Christ covers those who killed him because we need those who killed him to do that in order that we might all be saved, including those who killed him. It's a, (laughs) it's, it's kind of a, it's a fantastic exercise in circular reasoning. Um, You, you need, you need to kill Jesus in order to get forgiven for killing Jesus. That's it. Exactly. That's Um, it. It's it's astonishing to me how often these conversations come back to this. And I knew this was going to happen if we sat down for a few minutes and talked about, well, it's been more than a few minutes. If we sat down and talked about this movie because of the way it acknowledges the pursuit of power, um, it it, it was impossible not for us to go this direction. Um, which is why I was so anxious to have this conversation. <laughs> so there's our circular reasoning for us. We wanted to talk about this movie because this movie is about power. We want to talk about power because we're oh. anyway. Anyway, this is probably going to have to be a two-parter. So I think it was a wonderful conversation. Yeah, I, I enjoy it. Um, I, I'm glad we finally sat down to, to think this one through. Um, I've been kind of, I've I've been kind of. It's been in the back of my mind. Um, every now and then, I I see Dick Cheney's, well, Christian Bale as Dick Cheney's face, talking to me, saying, "You know, you still haven't sat down and made this recording with Paul yet." Which just for and, this part alone, here, uh, this guy's a brilliant actor. I mean, the, he's the, wonderful. Yeah, yeah, it's just unbelievable. It's uncanny. It is the. Uh, the, his portrayal. You know, I I also was impressed with Steve Carell's uh, Rum, Rumsfeld, mm. um, and um, Carell. They Carell's an I think an underrated actor just because of all his comedic roles. Um, 
but he sort of he's able to tap into uh, uh, one of the things that struck that's that's astonishing about Cheney and, and uh, Rumsfeld's uh, relationship is that how Cheney kind of comes up as a protege and then turns on Rumsfeld in the end and does the same thing to Rumsfeld that Rumsfeld's done to countless people Mm -hmm. Uh, just throws him under the bus and uh, Rumsfeld can't, he can't feel bad about it. I mean, uh, he, you know, there's that moment when uh, uh, Corral's Rumsfeld just sort of realizes he's been had and, um, and just sort of, uh, Shrugged his shoulders and said, well, that's the way it goes. This was, interestingly, that was the other thing the New Yorker took uh, exception to. You know, when uh, young Dick Cheney, who's being trained by Rumsfeld, he he turns to him and he, and he asks Rumsfeld, what what do we believe in? You remember that part of the movie? I do recall this, yeah. And Rumsfeld, of course, doesn't answer him. He bursts into uncontrollable laughter. And he disappears into his office laughing, you know, muttering, what do we believe in? Uh, and, of course, the the idea conveyed is, oh, we don't believe in anything. Right. And uh, what the New Yorker is saying, oh, it, it may be more dangerous than that. Right. That they do, in fact, uh, believe in a, a kind of right-wing ideology uh that is and that's the question well we're back we're back where we were again i don't i honestly don't know uh rumsfeld and uh, even with cheney i'm not sure which is the correct correct answer but uh here is i think uh if you don't want a cartoonish portrayal i think here's one of the best portrayals of real world evil uh, in the theater that, that at least for this year you can get. Right. Well, there you have it. Um, this has been Paul Axon and Jason Rodenbeck's analysis of the movie Vice. As usual, um, we have simultaneously ended up not sure where we ended up, but feeling like we solved everything. <laughs> And had a good time doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.